Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have, the show that unwraps the stories behind the worst gifts to have ever been given. Joining me this week is creative director Dan Shipton of Black Skull Creative. Dan stopped by the show to discuss his career working on productions including stadium tours for the likes of Take That to opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games. As well as all of that, he also let me in on the worst gift he's ever been given. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, in terms of the creative industry, was that something you were interested in working in from an early age? Yeah, definitely. Um, I originally, when I was at school um, and I was, you know, in my first year of drama, uh, not drama school, my first year of normal school. So I was like 12, 13. Um, I assumed that you could only do theatre and that kind of thing if you were an actor. So I ended up starting to do a bit of that. And I had a great school theatre and, and a great drama teacher. It was very inspiring. Um, but I soon realised that I absolutely hated being on stage and that it just had no place for me whatsoever. Um, so with that in mind, I was like, oh, my word, I don't really know what to do. I feel really uncomfortable up here, but it's the only way I can follow this creative passion. Um, and I was 13 and I was still on stage in a show. Um, I think it was Cabaret and I was one of the waiters and we were in the middle of a rehearsal and I looked off the stage and there was two teachers in the audience. One of them was directing the show and then the other one was doing something else. And afterwards I asked her what she was doing and she was stage managing the show. And I suddenly, that has kind of been the epitome moment of where my career has been because I trained as a stage manager originally. Um, and, um, it felt like it was the, uh, like a way of using obvious stepping stones and courses and things that were available to me to get me into the industry. But when I got to a certain point in my stage management career and I realized that I actually needed to scratch more of that creative itch, I kind of thought back to that moment and remembered that actually directing something is kind of cool. And now I've had that experience of being a stage manager, I can see more of a route into becoming a director. And so that's what I did. And that's what I'm doing today. I know a lot of your early work was in TV. Is that where the journey really started for you? Well, actually, I started off originally in theatre because I trained as a, in at Guildhall School of Music and Drama in stage management and technical theatre. But the, the, the summer before I went to drama school, um, I went off and I did work experience on the 100th episode of SMTV Live oh, yeah. with Anna Deck and Cat. And it changed my entire outlook on life because suddenly I realized that there was this other exciting medium that was much more in your face. It's much more short term. We didn't really rehearse that much. It was much, it suited my personality a lot more. So because of that, that really sparked my interest um, and made me realize that maybe the repetition of theater wasn't the thing for me. Um, so I went off and I did my degree and I got a great, I had a great time doing that. But all the time I was doing my degree, I was always doing stage management but in tv and i and i literally jumped ship of my degree and i finished on the friday and on the monday i started a, um, a tv job um, as an assistant stage manager um, and that naturally meant that my i had a great grounding in theater and that and theater ultimately obviously kind of inspired tv back in the day whenever that you know theater came first so all my education in theater never went to waste because it really grounded me in, in processes that actually a lot of people stumble into tv they don't understand those processes and kind of just muddle their way through but because i had that grounding it kind of allowed me to really access stage management in TV a lot better and kind of navigate my way through the system a lot quicker. Um, 
and within all of that, I also knew that I had this creative itch. And so I started to, I was obsessed with music videos. I really started to work out how I could do that. And, and I wanted to direct music videos. And so that became the thing that I started to do. And it was because I had my knowledge of TV and cameras and all that kind of root of being creative with cameras, work, camera work, um, that allowed that pathway to open up. And I started doing music videos, which then led into doing live performances with pop stars and other lovely things like that because it meant because I had all of that background knowledge from the theatre and combined with the TV to really bring those performances to life. Where do you draw your inspiration from creatively? I mean everywhere. I suppose I'm just almost like a sponge the whole time and inspiration comes from here. I love to read and that doesn't mean I'm reading books that are specifically there to inspire me. It just means that I'm inspired by story structure. I'm inspired by characters that like might be in a random book, but suddenly they come back to me. I'm inspired by other people's work. I'm inspired by Instagram and the pictures that I see, random videos Um, And I'm also inspired by technology a lot. So because I've got that in-depth understanding of like that kind of technical side of theatre and that background, seeing that technology and seeing a moving light, for example, that's been created specifically for a lighting designer, but I see that in a, how that not necessarily can be applied in a lighting designer way, but how that could look behind an artist or how it could um, be used to interact with one of our dancers that we're working with or something along those lines, just kind of seeing things, reframing it with my mind and then putting it to use in an idea when it is right. Before we get on to Black Skull and what you're doing more recently, I know you worked on the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. So I wondered how you got involved in that project and what you remember from that time. That was an amazing experience. Um, and actually that kind of, all of that, that period of time, that those, those kind of two years really kind of kick-started um, the process that is now Black Skull. Um, but essentially I was doing TV up until that time. And um, it was about six months before uh, 2012, or I started on 2012 because I started a year before um, the actual ceremony. Um, and I was working in TV and it was all kind of relatively small scale, but I'd started working as a stage manager with a band called Take That. Oh, yeah. um, and I've always, because I've, I, my style of stage management was always this hybrid of being really you know, good at organizing and doing everything a stage manager would do, but then also having this really great understanding of creativity because that's what I am as an individual. I was quite, you know, for the right type of um, director that I was working with, they loved that because I could really translate their ideas and make them practical for them. So I was doing this with TV and I started working with Take That on all of their TV shows. So every album launch they did with ITV, I was there as a stage manager and Kim Gavin, their creative director, who late in later years become a bit of a mentor to me as a director. He um, had all these big ideas and I was able to kind of really translate them and get them on stage for him um, alongside some of his other team. And he asked me to go on tour with Take That and do the Progress Tour, which was, I think it's the biggest stadium tour with a UK artist ever. And it's got the most dates in a row at Wembley or something like that. Anyway, it was huge. And I'd gone from doing these TV shows back almost through theatre to at a completely different scale and it was stadium scale and I and I it was quite addictive and once you've done stadium scale you can you learn a lot and so that really gave me my ticket into the world of 2012 you know this under this big creative understanding this big technical understanding but then working in stadium scale meant that when I applied for that job and and you know Kim gave Kim was directing the closing ceremony so he gave me a good write-up um and I kind of met 
the peers who, Piers Shepherd, who was the technical director at the time, they could see that this creative, the understanding of creative would be a real strong asset for my role. And I was, my official term was props production manager, which um, meant that uh, our department and, you know, when I first started, there was three of us in our department. We ended up doing um, something like 192,000 props across four ceremonies. Wow. Uh, and, a, and a prop on a stadium scale show is anything from the massive puppets that rolled onto the stage, which are like, you know, the size of tower blocks um, versus a little hand prop that someone carries in like a pocket watch and, you know, creating all of these from scratch, but not just that, the the system of delivering them around the stadium and making sure that your 10,000 cast are walking on stage with them at the right moment. All of this kind of infrastructure was just, it was mind bogglingly amazing. And I can't believe we did it, but it was something to be so proud of and to look back on, but also it kind of really inspired my creative way of thinking. And actually it kind of feels like now, if we can do that kind of thing, there's no reason why we can't do anything else. That's incredible. I mean, and you only really had sort of one shot to get that right as well, right? I mean, it was such a big event. Yeah. I mean, we obviously, yes, we rehearse sections a lot, but ultimately, yeah, it was, it's a one hit wonder. And you're also, um, being watched by, you know, two thirds of the, um, literally two thirds of the people in the entire world. So as a buzz, it's hard to replicate that. Um, we also got the opportunity, you know, I think if you're working on, once you've done the Olympics and you've done one of those shows, you find that you want to do more and you want that buzz again. And you also become quite a commodity because if you've had that experience, people want to buy that experience and you to, to create that for them. So when we got asked to go to Russia and we did the Sochi Olympics, that again was an amazing experience because it, for us, it was living in a different country. Um, it was a different, you know, uh, it was winter. So there was different issues related to that. But also what I did find is that there's nothing quite as inspiring as creating an amazing show in your home not just your home country, but your home um, city. Um, And as soon as we went to Sochi, it was like, yeah, it's amazing to create these amazing shows. But then I I lost the passion a little bit because it's not telling a story that matters to my heritage. I didn't feel as invested in the emotional context of the show. So it was a bit of a, it was a weird one. And it kind of forced me off the journey of wanting to do more Olympics and I felt like I ticked the winters, I ticked the summers, and that is what inspired me to make, come home and make the change of, I'm going to do a beer director now properly, I'm going to make a go of it, and I'm going to create stuff using all of the things that I've learned from all those big experiences, but I'm going to create my own work now to really kind of um, make sure that passion is there. Oh my God. All right, Dan, what is the worst gift you've ever been given? Oh, so I was thinking about this and I'm obviously so grateful to anyone that wants to buy me a gift. It's hard to kind of name it. But what I've realized is that I am the type I was thinking about. I'm I'm the kind of person I get told all the time, you're really hard to buy for, (laughs) which means like, it's, a, it's really frustrating because sometimes I open the presents and I'm like, oh my God, what have you bought me? Because I probably don't really want it. Um, so not being ungrateful, when I got a French bulldog um, about five years ago, suddenly everyone was like, oh my God, he loves French bulldogs. Let's get him every gift under the sun related to French bulldogs. I've got French bulldogs tea towels. I've got French bulldog um, like kind of figurines. I've got French bulldog mugs. I've got 
every French bulldog related things. And whilst some of those things are nice, quite often they're pretty ugly and they're not necessarily <laughs> the thing I want. But the worst one of those things, my dad and my stepmom bought me a lovely gift. And I have not admitted um, this because they're probably mortified. But there are these ornaments that you can get, which are white um, French bulldogs with gold wings on them. And it only occurred to me, because I'm part of a French bulldog um, group on Facebook, that these are the gifts that you're supposed to get people when their French bulldog dies. And put it on your shelf to remember your dead French bulldog. My French bulldog is running around and is happy as Larry and has not died, but my parents still don't know that they actually bought us a gift, which is to signify the death of your beloved pet. So we had it on the shelf, not realising that any of this was a problem and it was just like an ornament that we didn't really want, but we shoved up because you kind of do. And someone walked in, they were like, oh my God, has Reg died? And we were like, no. And they were like, why have you got that ornament? They explained it to us. We were mortified. And at that point, I do have a habit of knocking something off a shelf because if it breaks, I just get to put it on a bin. So I um, I had a glass of wine. I just knocked it off the shelf. It smashed <laughs> on the floor. It went in the bin. They've not been here because of the pandemic. So they don't know that ornament is gone. But if they're listening now, they will know that story. But that I would probably say just because of the context of the fact that A, it was another French Bulldog gift, which I probably don't really want anymore. Um, and B, it was associated with the death of my dog. You know, that's probably the worst. You mentioned the Olympics there being the starting point for what is now Black Skull Creative. So how did Black Skull come to be? Well, Black Skull actually started before, in between the two Olympics. So we finished... um, the, the Summer Olympics of London Olympics in the September 2012 um, after the Paralympics. And I realised that actually going back into TV at that point would be a smart move because ITV wanted me to go back, but they also understood that I'd kind of done other bigger scale things. So I could negotiate with them that I would become a creative director um, and work creatively on the shows with them, as well as doing some of the kind of more practical staging elements. So I went back there and I um, went in to do some shows from a kind of like uh, creative design point of view. Um, And I ended up doing another series of Dancing on Ice, which I'd done as a stage manager like 10 years in a row. Um, But I went back as um, staging producer and essentially driving the creatives with Christopher Dean. And then I met a guy well, Ollie Mers was booked to do the show. He didn't have a crazy director, but we as a show expected a big extravaganza. So I ended up staging that for him. That really was the first kind of iteration of me being a crazy director for a pop star. And it sparked something and it sparked relationships with record labels and all of it kind of those things tumble out from each other. But after in within all of that, um, doing that Dancing and Ice period, I got the call to go over to Sochi and do the Olympics, which I didn't want to turn down. Interestingly, at that point, we needed to, when we went to uh, Russia, we ended up having to become expat and we kind of um, didn't pay tax in the UK because we didn't need to for a year. And so my accountant said, look, if you set up a, a company, you'll still be able to do some kind of creative work here if it comes up. There's no pressure, but if you do that, then you're protected um, and you can still, you're still able to do that if, if need be. So I set up this company and 
I set it up within two days because I was about to get on a plane. So it's last minute thing to go to Russia. And um, he said, what are you going to call the company? And I was sat and I'm uh, on my, I'd been to see an exhibition of Mexican artifacts in the British museum. And there was a black skull sat at my desk and I'm obsessed with the color black. I only wear the color black. I'm, I'm obsessed with skulls and that I kind of iconography. And I was like, okay, I call it black skull. And that was where black skull originated from. And it became something that we I just set up really quickly and started coming back from Russia and doing these little one-off performances, like maybe once a month, there was no pressure, but it was kind of a fun thing to do. And little X factor performance here with a pop star or a little BGC performance there or whatever it was. And that was all really, really cool. Um, but it meant that actually, without even thinking about it, I was creating this portfolio of work as a director or as a creative director um, that when I came out of doing the Russian Olympics a year later, I had and could fall back on it. It was at that point that I kind of came home and I said, look, let's just see what this could be and whether it could grow. And in that process, I met Jay, who is one of my business partners. He's a choreographer at the time. He was in the same kind of headspace as me wanting to grow, wanting to be more creative, kind of move away from dancing and being fully focused on creating things. Um, my husband, Ross, wasn't my husband at the time, but he was my partner, is an amazing producer and director. And he also was in the same headspace. So we kind of realized that we were going to, we, we started working together naturally because we started creating together, but it wasn't an, a confirmed thing. And we kind of got through those first couple of months. And we were like, oh, wow, actually we've taken the sit back because it's Christmas. Working together and creating together is very inspiring. Let's make this a thing. And that's when we set up Black Skull Creative properly. We set it up as a three-way venture and on equal partnership have kind of gone out and created this brand of creativity that people seem to resonate with and we're doing cool things with. I'm interested in the process of it, in terms of like the TV show stuff. Do they come to you and they say, you know, X artist is going to play X Factor, here's the song, go nuts. Or, or is there more of an idea they come to you with and say, now bring that to life? It completely varies um, from brief to brief. And that's the interesting thing. It's exciting because you, there is no set way of, of dealing with it. It's so uncorporate in that. And, and that makes it kind of cool in a way. So sometimes they'll do exactly what you described. It's here's how much we want to spend. Here's the song. Here's maybe a logo or here's like the album cover or the single cover. Here's the video. Could it relate? What, what do you want to do? And we go back and, and um, kind of pitch a couple of ideas Sometimes they come home with a very strong idea and the artists have thought about it and that's what they want to deliver. And we just take those ideas and shape them into something that we know will work for camera. Or sometimes we sit in a room with the artist um, and that's our favorite thing is when we get to kind of really collaborate because ultimately they've, they've gone on a journey with that song before it even hits us. Maybe that song has been around for a year in their back catalog and they've been working on the lyrics. They've been working, you know, it's been a demo. It's been living with them they've gone through a crazy process to shape it to where it's got to. So for us to then come in um, when it's finally been released after, you know, X amount of time and put our own spin on it, that can sometimes work, but sometimes it feels alien to what the song is about or their understanding of what the song should be. So actually when we collaborate on those, those ideas, quite often that's where the magic really comes. I know another project that you guys worked on was Jurassic World Live, which I wanted to touch on quickly because that must have been a bit different to a lot of the other things you've worked on in the past, a lot of moving pieces. Um, so what was that production process like and logistically, how was that project to manage? 
Jurassic was a two and a half, it turned out to be in the end a two and a half year project because it was so complex and so big and it had to be so right for the brand. Um, we got approached by um, a company called Feld Entertainment out of America who were going to produce this show. At the time, they had a skeleton idea for what the, the story theme might be. Um, and we got brought in to work with um, the, the two writers to kind of bring that to life and really kind of flesh out what it was. And then we worked with, with Josh Zangen, who was the designer, to kind of bring that to life. We had a very specific process of how we wanted to bring that show to life because we didn't want it to be stop-start. It was a danger that it's got such big moving parts and those dinosaurs were so huge that actually it could become quite clunky as a show and we really wanted this kind of fluidity to it and this fluidity that would work well with the narrative that we'd written. So we had all these ideas from day one and with that amazing team, we were able to bring them to life. And of course, once we'd settled on all of that stuff, we then had to go through almost the same process that a film director goes through because we had to, first of all, we had to pitch the idea the, the, the detailed ideas to Universal who are, own, own the film rights then we had to go through another process to take all of that to Amblin Entertainment who are Steven Spielberg's company get through all of their levels of process and then eventually we ended up in a room with Steven no. um, and we got to sit there and spend a couple of hours with him taking him through every detail of the show getting all his input into it his mind is so integrated into that brand that we really want him to buy into every part of the, the storytelling of that show and make sure that we were hitting the right performance beats and everything and it was just the most incredible moment for us to kind of sit in a room and present this idea to the man that everyone looks up to as one of the best probably the best film director in the world was just insane and to have him not only approve of it, but uh, love it and love it so much that we were, he told us this story that he'd always wanted um, to make a full scale T-Rex for the film, but he'd never got around to it because they made, they didn't have the technology at the time when they did Jurassic Park. They only made small little bits of it. And actually when you look at that film, they really deal with like a hand at a time or a foot at a time. They don't really deal with that kind of big scale. And he never got round to making it because by the time he'd come back to the brand, CGI had gone to the next place. So he just jumped needing a big animatronic and went to CGI. So we were for him, the first people that brought this kind of theatrical experience to life for the brand. And he was just bowled over by it and loved what he saw when he came to see the show. It's an incredible story. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, Dan, we can't really talk about events and live performance without touching on COVID a little bit because, you know, it's been such a big thing for, yeah. for the whole world this last year. So I, I obviously assume that it had a big impact on, on you guys and what you do. But what have you yeah. been what have you been doing over the last year to sort of try and not only fill that void, but also work around it? You know, I can't talk about COVID without commenting on the fact that it, it's been such a killer to some elements of our industry. And if you're in the touring concert industry, what it's done to destroy the livelihoods of so many of my contemporaries and the crews and the other creators that solely rely on that as their source of income is just devastating. And with the government and the situation that we're currently in, it's so difficult to see that as a continual process that doesn't seem to have any resolve to it. So that side of our business is obviously shut down alongside everyone else who works in that side. But luckily our business has kind of three revenue streams. One of them would be TV performances. One of them would be live events. And one of them would be the, the touring concert. Whilst the touring concert side of it is shut down, 
so many of those other things have gone online. And so during the first pandemic, we were lucky enough to work with Ericsson to take all of their kind of mobile World Congress stuff online and, and give them a new identity with that. Then gradually, you know, the TV side of things started to open up. And of course, we're now able to create TV shows within this safe um, working practice that we're working in with all our COVID protocols. And so when that came back, that's been great because all the TV performances for pop stars have come back. We were able to create, continue making the the little mix, the search for BBC, which is a, a you know a TV show that we did, um, and we've been able to continue bringing storytelling online for some of the brands that we work with and and some of the other activations that we're doing. So whilst it's been a massive game changer and whilst it has destroyed a lot of the shows that we had planned and we were in planning for you know because we were working all, all, quite often with the big shows a year in advance those a lot of those shows have either been put on hold or canned actually it's forced us as creatives to really evaluate how we tell our stories and it's it's forced us to think about um, digital aspects and what you know some it, it's opened up and it's forced us to use this kind of XR medium. It's forced us to think about extended reality. Um, and it's forced our, we could have come up with those ideas if we'd have so chosen in the old climate before COVID, but actually the appetite for them wouldn't have been there from our clients. You know, why would a pop star want to work in an extended reality environment when actually they could work in a real environment unless they're forced to do that. And now because we've been forced into this situation, there's this real hybrid between extended reality and real reality. And and what's interesting is people are starting to realize that actually with it, with extended reality and kind of working essentially with your audience interacting with you via a camera lens, we can actually take those artists whether they be a brand or a pop star on a much bigger creative journey than we might have been able to before because before we were constrained by the realities of what it is to be in a real environment you know gravity you know budget all that kind of stuff but now working in this hybrid of real and not real we can suddenly put little mix for their ema's performance in the middle of this kind of futuristic um, utopia world at the top of a pyramid with this vast land behind them. And yes, we might have had that as a concept originally, and we would have brought it through the costumes, seen it in the screen content, um, maybe done a little intro piece of the performance. We would never have woven it through in this kind of extended way that we have been able to because of this situation. So I think whilst it's had its negatives, there have been some really interesting challenges that we've had to overcome. And actually it's kind of created a new generation of performance and storytelling, which actually I think probably will continue into the future. Even when the COVID is said and done, we will now start to think about things in this hybrid way. And, you know, we're seeing brands that used to do a show at the O2, for example, that would allow them to reach an audience of, say, 20,000 people in the physical space. But now they are taking everything online. They're telling things in a much more innovative way. And suddenly they're able to reach 60,000 people. And so for them, that's a real win, actually. And again, you've got um, the necessity of it. But now you've got the audience are wanting to go on that journey with you because they've got an appetite for something different. So I think COVID, you've got to look for the positives in life. And that is one of them. It's just forced this new creative arc that we wouldn't have expected to go on. (laughs) 
wrapping up, Dan, if you could go right back to the beginning of your career and buy yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? Ooh, that is a difficult one. Um, if I was to go back to the start of my career and give myself a gift, it would, this is obviously, it didn't exist at the time, but I would give myself an iPad with um, a writable pen. That has literally revolutionized the way that I can draw, I can create designs, I can mark up scripts, I can send stuff from it. And actually all of the times that I've spent standing at photocopiers, photocopying notes. And actually when I started stage management, it used to be called a triplicate book, which was basically a piece, three pieces of paper with blue ink sheets that you put in between them. So when I did a rehearsal note, it literally did three copies of it with me pressing on the pad. So awful. It would be revolutionary to not have to have gone through all that pain. But you know, part of that pain is that I had all those stories to tell of me being really old and having triplicate books and whatever, but actually it would have revolutionized it. So I'd buy myself that. Fantastic. And finally, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Check out blackskullcreative.com or follow me on Instagram at shiptonight, S-H-I-P-T-O-N-I-T-E, like kryptonite, but ship tonight. Nice. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to have a chat with you. James, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.